with all things through a season, you go through difficulty. Families go through trials and struggles, amen? And, and we, we endeavor and we work through it. And we try to figure out where we're going and what we're doing. And we hit roadblocks along the way. And this, this, was, this is still unprocessing, but there's been a series of events that I'm trying to figure out where I land on that um, in relation to the larger scheme of things. It involves a very dear friend of mine and another dear friend of mine who are both on opposite sides. And where do you, where do you go? And I'm not interested in going solely to one um, or solely to the other. They're my friends. And I'm not sure how to navigate that. I've been asking the Lord for wisdom. But I will say that this message was inspired by that because I'm not the only one being affected. There's others on our staff that are being affected by it as well. And mind you, it's nothing overwhelming or difficult or uh, insurmountable. It's just hard. Just hard. And it requires... um, endeavoring and laboring and a lot of prayer and asking God for wisdom. And as I was kind of witnessing how people treat one another, you have a relationship for 25 years with somebody and all of a sudden you're asked to end that relationship. And I, I, I can't do that. I, I want to know on what grounds. Um, I know as pastors we go through corrective seasons and God wants to correct us, but who, to, to what extent is the punishment um, and so I've been going back and forth and I, this message ministered to my heart. And so with that, it'll be somewhat topical, but it will be expositional. So if you would open up to Titus, the book of Titus, it's in the New Testament. It's one of the smaller epistles and we're going to be in Titus chapter three, Titus chapter three. And I pray it ministers to you because, um, this is a uh, this is a much needed missing element in the body of Christ. I, I don't know that we exercise this enough, and I really think we need to heed it, receive it, and apply it, not just to ourselves, but to those that have wounded us. Amen. You don't even know what it is. And you said, amen. God bless you guys. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And Father, take us through this. Open our eyes to what you desire to do and speak this truth into our lives. Equip us, Lord, to be ministers of this good news, this hope, this merciful, gracious, abundant love from the Father. So Lord, please, I pray that you'd show us that tonight and that we'd extend it to others in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Titus chapter 3. Uh, Verses 1 through 7, I'll read it out loud. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for good work, to speak evil of the people you don't like. Oh, good, somebody was reading along with me. (laughs) To speak evil of... Thank you, amen. Amen. What does no one mean? In the Greek it means... All right. Speak evil of no one. To be peaceable. Gentle. Showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, 
deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yeah. Having been justified by his grace. By his grace. And I love this idea, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared... The kindness and the love of God, our Savior. I emphasize that because I, I, I think how quick we are to forget why we have the ability to sit here. It's not because anybody's righteous in and of themselves or anything that they've accomplished, right? We're here because of the grace and the goodness of God. I'll turn this on. I just pulled up a couple of those verses. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness. I love this idea because this week, what, what, what we're, I'm, I'm finding a pattern, and I, I share this because it's illustrative for my own life and to the best of my ability, I try to share with you what I'm processing and I imagine you can just take a different scenario and relate to what I'm sharing from my world. Um, I've noticed that there is a, a pattern on the city council. And the pattern is this. People don't participate in local government for local government's sake. They participate... What was that? Oh, the chair. Okay, I thought it was me sneezing or my belly or something. Uh, people participate in local government only when they have an issue that bothers them. And when that issue is no longer on the docket, they leave. And, and every time an issue touches them, they come solely for that issue and they want the entire force of the council to yield all resources to accomplish whatever the issue is. And now in my short stint on the council, I've gone through four of these where they've invoked, not knowing how to articulate it, but really what they've invoked is what's called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. They're saying, we want you to take all of the city's resources and fight an entity larger than yourself, whether it's the county, the state, or the federal government. And you must do this, and you must protect us. And I, I get their fervency and their desire, and, and yet they come to the city council meetings because the coolest thing about local government is it's accessible. You're not going to be able to have that kind of conversation with your assembly member, maybe your county supervisor, but I seriously doubt it. And you certainly aren't going to get it with your congress member or your senator. And you can, you can sit in that meeting and, and go all day long on any issue you desire. And it, it works. But what I've noticed is when people want us to side, I only have one concern. Civility. I, I'll listen to anyone. They can be derogatory towards me. They attack anyone else. I tell them, address your issues to the council, please. We're wired for this. Be caustic. 
Be bombastic, be deceptive, do whatever you want, but just direct it towards us. We have big shoulders, we can handle this. And I, I want every single time to be kind. And I've noticed there's a, only a couple of occasions where somebody got under my skin and I just remained silent. It's better, you know, the Bible says in your anger do not sin and I always sin when I open my mouth when I'm angry. And you just, you sit there and you learn patience and I find that when I'm praying for the person while they're speaking angrily towards me, I can't hate them. I have a heart for them. Um, and I'm, I get burdened for that. I share all that because what you, you find lacking in civil discourse, especially when someone's angry and especially when they're frustrated and especially when things aren't going their way, they don't have nice things to say about others. And so the Lord points out in this passage of Scripture and he emphasizes um, through Paul's hand, he says, this idea of, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, but he goes further at the beginning to say, speak evil of no one. Be ready for every good work. Obey authorities. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves also were once foolish. It's amazing how dogmatic we can become when the issue is to our benefit. And we feel as though we have the right to treat another human being improperly because we have the facts on our side. Anybody? And it, and it may be 100% true you have the facts on your side, but it doesn't give you the right to attack another person. You may deal with the issues, but you can't. It just, it's, it's not called for. And then when being treated that way, the Bible says when being reviled, you revile not. And I find myself checking myself continually God, soften me. I share this because the one thing that tends to always minister to my heart and bring me to that place of surrender when I'm being reviled or I'm being attacked or I'm defensive or I'm being addressed for a shortcoming of my own because, you know, what is, what is the ego? It's self-preservation. Nobody likes to be crucified, Nobody likes to be corrected. I hate being corrected. I'm very defensive when I'm corrected. Very defensive. None of you seem to be that way. I can see it. You're humble through the whole place. You love being corrected. You just, you just take it. Amen? No? No. Okay. We don't like it when we're corrected. Ego is self-preservation, but the scripture says, I, ego, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. So, we die, he lives. What, what do we live to? And that's the passage that I keep emphasizing. The kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What is the kindness of God? Before we answer that tonight, and I'm going to give a couple of illustrations, I want you to turn real quick to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things... And doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you 
to repentance. What leads us to repentance? Let's try that again. What leads us to repentance? And what is that goodness? It's forbearance and long-suffering, patience. I got news for you right now. There is a sin in your life, and you are well aware of it. And I know nothing about it. And neither is probably anybody else in the room. Because God in his patience and his forbearance and his long suffering is allowing you to come to repentance by his goodness. And what is that goodness? He keeps your heart beating and your lungs moving. He speaks to you in psalms, hymns, and spiritual praises. He's gently moving upon your heart to let it go. We return to it like a dog returns to its vomit. We return to the sin and God just keeps waiting and waiting and loving. And then we come to that place, this idea that according to his mercy, he saves us through the washing and regeneration of the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He pours us out abundantly. We're justified by his grace. And all of a sudden, we just realize this, this freedom. And then we see someone else in bondage, and we don't have time for it. We have no patience for that. We have no tenderness, no long-suffering. We just, we want it corrected immediately. Yes? No? Maybe? Oh, gosh, I guess this message is just for me. Why don't you guys go home, and I'll just preach it to myself. James says in James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he says, So speak, so speak, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive. Do you want judgment or do you want mercy? Then you need to give to receive. And if you judge without mercy... You will receive judgment without mercy. The idea is, when did we wake up and think we were better than the person that just got saved or hasn't been saved yet? When did we realize our sin looks worse on somebody else than it did on us? Anybody? The kindness, the kindness, and I keep emphasizing this because this is what spoke to me in Titus, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, his mercy, he saved us, his mercy, he saved us. We can have judgment, but there needs to be mercy with it. Because if you have judgment without mercy, you're going to receive the same. Turn with me. This is going to be a fun little journey, and this is going to be our scriptural illustration for the passage we just read in Titus. We're going to go to the Old Testament for an illustrative picture of the kindness of God, the kindness of God. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you would, 1 Samuel chapter 20.
going to pick up at verse 11. I want to share with you this really cool friendship. I've covered it before, but it's never really hit me until now in relation to what God wants, at least from my own life, and I pray from yours as well. Verse 11 of 1 Samuel 20, it's a really cool friendship. You've heard me speak of it, and it begins with this. And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send you and tell you, may the Lord do so much more uh, so, so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Do you guys remember the story of David and Goliath? So David's a, a ruddy boy, 1 Samuel 17. He goes out and takes down Goliath. He cuts off Goliath's head, and later he comes and brings the head of Goliath to, to Saul. Jonathan, who we just read, is the son of Saul. Jonathan is also the prince to take the throne from Saul. David shows up, and he's a man after God's own heart. God has already anointed him king. Samuel has poured the oil on his head. He shows up with the head of Goliath. He becomes a psalter, a musician uh, in, in the court of Saul. And he starts to ra- rise in favor. But when, in this instant, in, in 1 Samuel 17, in this instant when David walks in with the head of Goliath, Jonathan, who's wearing the princely robe and the belt and all the accoutrements of being the next in line for the throne, he sees David and the scripture says that his, his soul was knitted to the heart of David's. And he took off his belt and he took off his robe and he laid it at the feet of David, basically saying, I am, I'm not the prince, you are. Now what's fascinating about this is earlier on in Jonathan's life, when he was about 20 years of age, he took on the Philistines with just his armor bearer, if by few or by many. And he had this, this zeal and this faith, just like David did on the, on, in the Valley of Elah with Goliath. He takes on the Philistines, vanquishes them all by himself and his armor bearer. An amazing story. Uh, he serves his father, who is you know a couple hot dogs short of a picnic. He serves him faithfully. And, and Jonathan is a man who just doesn't waver. The people defend him because he's such a solid guy. And here he is. He's, he's been in battle. He's battle-hardened. He's experienced the presence of the Lord and the faithfulness of a servant. And now he's serving his father, who is a difficult man to serve. And he may be a tough man to serve, but here's another one. He stinks as a dad. And there's only going to be one person who's worse as a father, and that's David. And Jonathan has a disappointing father. Saul even threatens to kill his own son. People save him. But one day he sees David and he takes off his belt, he takes off his robe and he lays it at the feet of David. 
What's fascinating about this, absolutely fascinating about this, anybody in the room 20 years of age? In, in your 20s? Anybody? You're in your 20s? You're in your 20s? You're in your, you're, you look, come on. I need a male. That'll work. My eyes are failing me. Come on up. Thank you. I'm 54. You are? 20. Say it in here. 20. This was the age of David when Jonathan took his robe off. And this was Jonathan's age, and he laid it at David's feet. 54, 20. I'm in line to have the authority of the kingdom. And when I give it to him, you tracking me? Don't be bummed. <laughs> Do you see how significant what Jonathan did was? He was 54 years old and he yielded to a 20 year old. What kind of character and confidence does a human being have to surrender authority like that? When we get authority, we never want to let it go. It's like a white knuckle ride. And we look at the young people, and they're waiting to take it from us. You're just waiting for me to get old and die, aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Thanks, man. He's a good-looking Jonathan, by the way. I mean, David, right? And here's what's fascinating. He helps David through his father's kingdom. Because Saul is a train wreck. Saul tries to kill David. He throws spears at him. He says, look, I've lived with my dad. I get the dysfunction. We don't get to pick the parents we get in this world. We can pick the kind of parents we're going to be. Jonathan has children. David has children. And David was always considered the least in his father's estimation, so David even had dad issues. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> David kills Goliath, and it brings us to this passage. Um, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. You know what, 2 Samuel chapter 4 first, please. 2 Samuel chapter 4, please. In the previous passage that we read in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan asked David, after he laid down his robe, after he laid everything down, he knew that he was going to be king. He recognized that David was going to be king. Jonathan made a covenant with David, and what did he say? Do you remember what we just read? Anybody? Nothing's been learned, nothing's been taught. Do we have to go back? Yes? Don't destroy my family. Make a covenant with my family. Era? Awesome. So he made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And, and he said that my house... Uh, Cut off your kindness, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. David, you're going to be king. I can see an anointing on your life. I yield my princehood to you. But man, when you take over, remember me and remember my family. Make a covenant before the Lord. That's how confident I am in you. I was with a guy today who was telling me, yeah, this new software that we put together is going to take off, and this is the early projections on it, and he's legit, and he's going to be a mucho, mucho, bazillion air. And I said, hey, don't forget, you and I sat here having coffee. We're friends, remember? He's like, I won't forget you. I was just joking with him. 
But in this case, he says, promise me that you will take care of my family when all of your enemies have been vanquished, right? And at this point, when he's making this covenant, who's one of David's enemies? Saul's trying to kill him. Saul and Jonathan die. Um, Bet-Sheen is where we went to visit the ruins, and that's where they hung the bodies of Saul and Jonathan on the wall. And they're killed, and, and we find in 2 Samuel chapter 4 when, when Jonathan and Saul are killed that the enemies just start coming to eviscerate all of the descendants and the children of the king and they are hunting them down. And in fear, Jonathan has a boy and the nursemaid tries to hide Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, who is in line for the throne. 2 Samuel chapter 4, look at verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth means destroyer of shame. It's kind of an interesting name. But his nursemaid's running with him. He's five years old. His his dad's been killed. His his grandpa's been killed. The nursemaid trips, falls, probably breaks his back. He's lame in his legs. Atrophy sets in. He's been lame since he's been five years old. His his legs are crippled. Now we move to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Don't worry, we'll get through it. You'll understand. Verse 1. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Stop. Now. That sentence begins with now. Now means this is the pinnacle of David's kingdom. Israel would never be this large. 60,000 miles of, of property. It is, it's huge. It's an enormous kingdom. And, and David has vanquished all of his enemies. It's the extent of David's kingdom. He's completed it. In addition, he has brought the ark back into the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, there is, he has nobody's butt to whoop. He is, he is just sitting on the throne. He is completely in control over everything. Everyone's bringing tribute. They're yielding to him. He has vanquished every enemy. And the first thing that comes to his mind now that he has this massive kingdom that God has blessed him with is it brings us to what we just read. Now when Saul had finished speaking to the soul of Jonathan, I'm sorry, we read that. That was the covenant he made. He remembered back in 1 Samuel 18. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan took off his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow. And again, just to emphasize, this is a 50-year-old and a 20-year-old. I know I look like him, kind of, but that's Jonathan and David in a sense. And now at this point, David is saying, I, I'm old, and my mentor Jonathan's gone, and I promised him. And my soul was knitted to him and I miss him. I have pleasant memories of all of my mentors. They haven't always been good men, but I have pleasant memories. Winston Churchill never said a mean thing about his father, Randall. Never said a mean thing about his mother. 
And you know, they were just awful. His father died of syphilis. His mother was a brazen hussy throughout all of England. Reagan never said anything bad about his dad. And he had to drag him in from the house because he was drunk, face down in the snow, and he was going to freeze to death. And young Reagan, they called him Dutch, had to drag his dad in. They never had a place to live because they moved from house to house because his dad was an alcoholic who could never hold down a job. But you read every, everything Reagan's ever written, you never say anything bad about his dad. What's fascinating is that when we find somebody who's mistreated us, we, we talk all day long about how bad they are. We can't let it go. And yet, in this picture, you never see David speak ill of Saul. He never speaks ill of Saul. And the first thing that comes to his mind here in 2 Samuel 9, when he's sitting on this throne and the kingdom is his, it says, now David said, is there anyone still uh, who is left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? I, I remember Jonathan, I want to take care of this. And they said, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, and this you can read with me if you want in 2 Samuel 9. He said, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there's still the son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Mahir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. You can see the meaning of those words. They're kind of significant. It just He's out in the wilderness. He's hiding. He thinks that the king wants to kill him. You know what happens when a king takes over for another king? He kills all of his descendants so that he holds the throne. And Mephibosheth is hiding. He can't run. Uh, he's scared to death to go anywhere near David. All of his family's dead. And... Uh, Verse 5, the king sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And you can imagine the scenario here. He answered, he says, here's your servant. He prostrates himself before David. But what's interesting, he comes to David and he's crippled. But the scripture says he was crippled in both feet from five years of age, so his legs have atrophied, and I think here he is, and at this point, when he's coming before David, guess how old Mephibosheth is? 20. Guess how old David is? 50. Mephibosheth comes in, and as he approaches David, I can imagine the first thing that David did he probably looked at him and says, man, you look like your dad. Do you know how much I loved your dad? I miss him. That was probably the last thing that Mephibosheth was thinking David was going to say. Why are you here? I'm going to kill you, you lousy good friend. The first words out of David's mouth when Mephibosheth falls on his face and he says, here's your servant. What are the first three words out of David's mouth? Verse 7. What does the angel of the Lord say to everyone he appears to? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Fear not, for I am with you. Lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. We're always fearful of our past. We're always fearful of our future. We're always fearful of the present. Do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan's sake, your father. For Jonathan, your father's sake. What's he going to show him? Does that sound familiar? 
but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared toward man? Don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. I love this picture. This is a picture of the kindness of God. You know, I love listening to different commentators, and in particular this idea, this this picture of Mephibosheth being crippled and fearful of coming to God because he's going to judge me. God's going to kill me. God doesn't want anything to do with me. And it doesn't have to be crippled in the legs. I love what commentators say. You could be crippled in addiction. You could be crippled in abuse that you've suffered. You could be crippled in anger that you possess. You could be crippled in whatever. And all you can think is, why would God want anything to do with me? You can think of Mephibosheth. I can't even walk. Why would you want me anywhere? You're just going to kill me. Why am I even alive? My whole life I've been running. I don't even know what it's like. I was five years old when I was crippled. My dad died. I don't even know what it's like to be in a palace. You tell me I'm a child of the king. What are you smoking? I've been running. I've been hiding. Everything I can do just to, I don't want anyone to know. Nobody even comes and visits me. Who wants anything to do with a crippled person? And I think that that's a very profound picture for all of our lives. That we can think that God doesn't want anything to do with us. But why does David want anything to do with Mephibosheth? He made a promise, a covenant. He made a covenant. What's the blood of the new covenant? This is my blood shed for you for the remission of your sins. I made a promise to you. I, I, I don't care where you're hiding, I'm coming to get you. And you're gonna come and be in my kingdom and eat at my table. You're gonna be my son. You're gonna be my daughter. Where are you hiding? I made a promise. To tell us, die, it's finished. I paid it. My kindness is awaiting you. What are you crippled with? Come. I'll show you mercy. You're not going to get judgment from me. I'm going to give you mercy. And my kindness is going to lead you to repentance. My kindness is going to bring you to a place where you're going to want to do this. Not because you have to, but because you want to. It's an unconditional covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. David made a covenant with with Jonathan. And here you see this picture before our very eyes of what God is doing in our life is the same thing that David is doing with Mephibosheth's life. And I love this. Verse seven, let's go back to it. Do not fear if I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Why does the father show us kindness? When God looks at you, does he see your sin or does he see his son's righteousness? And, and what is his righteousness? It's the blood that's covered us and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. 
He doesn't, make, he doesn't call us righteous because of what we've done. He calls us righteous because of what his son has done. I'm not doing this. I'm doing this for Jonathan's sake. And I'm doing this for my son's sake. Because he did this for you. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. It's, it's, like, it's like David... David says to Mephibosheth, I see, I see Jonathan in you. And you know what the Lord says to us? He says, yeah, I see Jesus in you, but more importantly, he says, yeah, I, I see what Adam used to look like. Just like your dad. You're creating his image. You, are, you, you, just, you bring joy to my heart being with you. And I love having you in my family. I love having you at my table. And what's fascinating is he says all this, you shall eat bread at my table continually. And look at verse eight. This seems to be all of our responses. Or at least it should be, this humility. Then Mephibosheth bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as me? Some people think God got a deal when he got them. <laughs> I'm God's gift. I mean, I just, they have a world of hurt awaiting them. But this idea, God, why did you pick me? I mean, if I really want to examine my life, if I really want to take inventory of all the things I've done, all the things I've said, the way I've treated people, the stuff I think in secret, I mean, Lord, really, why are you giving me the time of day and how many times have we addressed this sin and you have been long-suffering and patient with me? And instead of judgment, when I know I deserve it, all you've given me is mercy. Mercy. Really? You love me that much, Lord. What do you want with a person like me? There's often times, and I've said this to myself, you know, I, I, I see guys like Jack Hibbs or, you know, Joe Foch or Greg Lorries. I used to think, God, why didn't you make two of them and none of me? I, I, it's, it's this idea, Lord, why do you have me in ministry again? And then now it's gotten to a place where I actually laugh. And, and I, I think he can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. In verse 9, the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. You shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And I love this. Mephibosheth had a young son and he named him Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. I love that he named his son Micah. 
Micah is a derivative of Michael, which means who's like the Lord? God, only you could have pulled this off. And, and it's my entire life is surrounded by mercy. Mercy. Ziba was a little irritated. It's interesting that as a servant of the Lord, you can get stuck in feeling like you deserve something. And this is where life breaks down sometimes. Turn with me, and we're almost finished. Um, 2 Samuel 16, if you would. 2 Samuel 16. Second Samuel chapter 16. In 2 Samuel 15, which I don't want to read for the sake of time, um, it recounts the, the treason of David's son Absalom, and David retreats from the throne in Jerusalem. So David's family starts to implode, and this is one of the things we've been seeing in the Calvary movement is, you know, a lot of pastors are good pastors, but they're not very good fathers, and the kids are always an issue, and, and we're always dealing with the kids and the grandkids, and, and uh, even Chuck had struggles with his kids, and I... Uh, I actually told the Lord, I said, take me out of ministry if it's, if it's going to come at the expense of my children. I, I don't want it. You know, I, I don't, I, I have no interest in putting my kids on the altar for the sake of ministry. And the Lord's been good. I, I'm blessed by the way in which he's ministered to my children. And he's been faithful in that regard. But David's son Absalom rebels against him. And David has to leave Jerusalem. He's, he's an old man by now. And um, Mephibosheth is... Now, in his 50s, David's in his 80s. And uh, now we come to, to chapter 16. And Ziba tries to gain a foothold in David's kingdom to make Mephibosheth appear to be uh, disloyal. Disloyal. When David... Uh, Chapter 16, verse 1, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, a skin of wine, and David's in need of it because he's running for his life from Absalom. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? And then Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit uh, for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Meaning, where is Mephibosheth? And Z Ziba throws his master under the bus. He says, oh, indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom to my father and to me. Meaning, he's siding with Absalom, not you. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba's like, score, I just played him. I now get the kingdom. <laughs> and Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, O Lord, my king. Right? And now we'll conclude, go to chapter 19, because David returns after the death of Absalom. And the first one to greet David when he enters the city is who? Mephibosheth, thought maybe you're staying with the pattern here. Mephibosheth is the first one to greet David. How does a cripple guy get to him first? He works twice as hard. 
He crawls his way to David. Now Mephibosheth, 2 Samuel 19, verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He knew he'd been betrayed. He, there was nothing he could do to defend himself. He was crippled, so he just, he just said, from this point on, I'm going to let David see that I have done nothing. And he just let his fingernails grow and his beard grow and his clothes wear out. And he answered, O Lord, my king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were dead men before my lord, the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Ziba divide the land. And watch what he says. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all. Inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. You know how you can tell when somebody's broken and surrendered? They just give it up. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. Everybody wants to divide the kingdom. Everybody wants to fight for the assets. Everybody wants a title. We'll do whatever we need to do. We'll lie. To win the issue in the day. We'll make up stories. We'll do whatever we need to do to get what it is we want. And we'll call ourselves Christians. But at the end of the day, he just said to him, take it all. I would rather have nothing and have you than to have everything and not have you. I want to be at your table. I want to be in your presence. I want to be right with you. Life would be so much better if we lived that way. And we'd be so much more merciful. But here's the problem, and I'll close with this. Grace received is grace bestowed. I think we give grace when we stop and we remember how much we've received. I think we can be a lot kinder to people and a lot nicer and a lot more patient. And I think it would do wonders for our families and our friendships, our group of churches, our city. But when the kindness of God appeared, this is, this is the kindness of God the Father. He's merciful, he's long-suffering, he's patient. Apply mercy in your judgment and you'll receive the same. Mephibosheth is a good one to learn from. We're all, we're all lame and we're all scared and we all got nothing. 
and everyone's trying to steal it from us. But the one thing we have that we should fight to maintain is we're part of the king's family. Don't let anyone take you from that table. Take it all, but give me the table. I just want to sit with the king. And we have that. We have a covenant. An earthly covenant with a really rotten guy. But God, we have a covenant with a God who never lies. 